0: You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. Amen. You can be seated. Man, what a great morning so far. I'll try not to mess it up. Let's go to the Gospel of Mark together. Go to Mark chapter 3. We've been in the Gospel of Mark the last several weeks, and we'll be in it for weeks to come. So Mark chapter 3, let's begin in verse 1. I encourage you to keep your Bible open to this chapter. We'll be walking through this together. I'm going to go back a little bit to chapter 2 and pick up a little bit of a story we missed last week, but otherwise we'll be pretty much in Mark 3 the entirety of the morning. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Mark chapter 3 verse 1 give you a little context here. Again, he, meaning Jesus, he entered into the synagogue. Now, this is a synagogue in Capernaum or, or at least somewhere around the Sea of Galilee, maybe Mygdala, uh, but probably there in Capernaum. He entered again that synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they, now the they is the Pharisees, or the scribes, the religious leaders, they watched Jesus. That tends to be their M.O. They just watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him, the man with the withered hand, on the Sabbath. So that, and here's why they're watching him, so that they might accuse him. Now if you've been here the last few weeks, you've probably seen this pattern over and over again of the Pharisees just kind of watching. Watching and Waiting. They tend to always be following Jesus around, just kind of looking to see if they might be able to accuse him of of breaking a law or certainly accuse him of of blasphemy. Let me kind of show you some of the places. A few of these will be reminders of what we looked at already. And one of these places will be something we have not seen yet. Just go back in your Bible to chapter 2. Look at verse, uh, verse 13 with me. I was kind of tell you what's happening here. That the quick narrative: um, Jesus is in Capernaum again, the, the little city, the village on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. It was his headquarters for about eighteen months, and he is walking through that city. And he even says here that he was the crowd was coming to him. In verse fourteen, he was passing by, so he was walking through the city, and he saw Levi. You might know him um, as, as Matthew, one of the, the followers of Christ, the disciples. And as he was walking through the city, and as he was picking out a Levi to be one of his followers, he then goes with Matthew to Levi, to Levi's home, And there in that home, there, there are tax collectors and there are sinners. And pick it up here in verse 16. We saw this last week. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw, again, there's their MO, they're watching. They, they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors. They said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and, and sinners? So here's the Pharisees or the scribes of, of the Pharisees. They're, they're following. They're, they're watching. They're looking for a way to accuse. What we did not see last week is also in chapter 2. Let's just pick it up uh, there in verse 23. If your Bible opens, it's not on the screen behind me, but in your Bible. One Sabbath, he, meaning Jesus, was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck the heads of the grain. And and look at this, verse 24. And the Pharisees were saying to him. So get in your mind's eye this this story or this little picture of of Jesus and his disciples. On a Sabbath, they were walking through the fields. And here are the Pharisees just following right after him. Just watching, just, just waiting for, for a time that they can, they can accuse him. They're looking for some kind of a little opening where they can, they can have that aha moment with Jesus and say, see, we knew that you were a lawbreaker. See, we knew that you were not sent from God. And the same thing is happening right here in chapter three, verse one. Again, Jesus entered the synagogue. So you see the, the movement of Jesus. He is going into the synagogue and after him are the Pharisees. And they're watching. I'm convinced that the Pharisees sweated a lot in the Gospel of Mark. It just wasn't holy sweat. They were always just kind of pursuing Jesus, kind of following after Jesus. They were watching him, looking for a time to accuse him, looking for a way to make themselves look better. If the cry of John in John chapter 3 was, Jesus, I want to be less so that you can be more, the cry of the Pharisees was, I want to be more so that Jesus can be less. And this morning, I just want to begin here in verse 1 and verse 2 with this hopefully simple, pragmatic thought. One of the most practical ways to be less is to be a servant to all. One of the most practical ways that you and I can be less and Jesus can be more, or as John said in John chapter 3, for you and I to decrease and for Jesus to increase is for you and I just to be committed to be a servant to all. Who is our example in this. Who would be our standard? Well, here's what Paul said in Philippians chapter two, verse five through seven, you see on the screen behind me. Your attitude, Highland, your attitude, sons and daughters of God, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, something to be grasped, but made himself Nothing. He lessened himself. He lowered himself. Taking the very nature of, and here's our operative word for this summer, taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness. Jesus then, friends, is our standard. He is our example. in being a servant to all. And pouring ourselves out and lowering ourselves as Christ did. He made himself nothing so that he might be a servant. Mark chapter 3, look at verse 3. Let's finish this great story of, of the man with the withered hand. And and he said to the man, so Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. I love verse 4. The, the, uh, I love how Jesus works this. And he said to them, so he said to the man with the withered hand, You come here. Then Jesus said to the Pharisees, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? And in a remarkable moment of the Pharisees not having anything to say, they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored and the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Now, when the gospel writer Luke tells this story, he, Luke is the doctor, he's a little bit more detailed. He said it was the right hand, that this man, his right hand was withered and that the term that Dr. Luke uses is the word uh, in Greek for atrophy. It was, it was useless, it was almost dead. It, it, was, it was completely uh, useless to this man. Now, let's make sure we understand this together. This was not a life-threatening disease this man had. He was not terminal. This was not going to take his life. Um, But Jesus made a choice here to heal him on that day. Jesus could have healed him the next day. Jesus could have healed him on any of the other other six uh, non-Sabbath days. And what I'm trying to say is this was a postponable healing Jesus could have waited a few more days, but Jesus was being very key, very intentional, very purposeful of no, I'm going to heal him in this place, the synagogue, on this day, on this Sabbath. I want you to pick this up. Why does Jesus do it then? Look at verse four again. And he turned around to the religious leaders, to the Pharisees, and asked them this question Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? And they were silent. And I love verse five. And he looked around at them with anger. I mean, There's some emotion stirring in the heart of Jesus. Not only angry, he was grieved at their hardness of heart. And it was almost the Bible, the way Mark writes this, is that he is looking at them, grieved, and while he's still looking at them, he says, stretch out your hand. Almost like, look, Pharisees, what I'm about to do. And that hand was stretched out toward Jesus, and that hand was healed. Jesus purposely breaches the Sabbath in front of these law makers and law keepers. Those who had piled on laws as burdens on top of others. Those who thought that by being religious and abiding by the law, they somehow might win the favor of God or merit the favor of God. Jesus purposely breaches the Sabbath. What it is, it's an attack. It is Jesus going on the offense. And he is attacking the religious system of the day. And it was a false religious system. Now verse 6, the way that verse 6 reads kind of requires us to ask two questions. It says in verse 6, the Pharisees went out, and here's Mark's favorite word, immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. The first question is this, who are the Herodians? The Herodians were those in, in Israel who held tightly to King Herod and his family as the power brokers of Israel, or if you will, the saviors of Israel. Um, they looked to, to King Herod and to his three sons and to his daughter, the Herodian dynasty. It lasted about um, 75 to 90 years. And the Herodians, they, they, they were not a religious group. They were a political group. And they were really hoping that somehow Herod might bring Israel up as 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 the great hope of the entire area. Now, in the last thirty years we've had the same thing. We had the Clintonians and we had the Bushies and we had the Obamaites and we had the Trumpians. And what it is, again, it is not a religious group, it was a political group. And I think I can say based on God's word right here, it is a dangerous thing for the church to marry itself to a political party. And here we see that these religious leaders, they would take advantage of the Herodians when it was to their advantage. And the Herodians would take advantage of these religious leaders when it was to their advantage. Not only who are the Herodians, that question comes out of verse six, but probably that the bigger question is why do the Pharisees hate Jesus this much? Immediately after this man's hand was, was healed, They held counsel. They called together this group of of the Pharisees and and the Herodians. And look what it says here. They were were counseling against him how to destroy him. In other words, how are we going to kill this man? They were planning his death. They didn't hate Jesus because he fed people. They didn't hate Jesus because he healed people. They didn't hate Jesus because he was casting out demons. They didn't hate Jesus because he abruptly put an end to some funerals with with a resurrection. He, they were hated. He was hated. They hated him because of what he said. He claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to have been sent. From heaven. He claimed to be the promised one. He claimed to be the Messiah. He cl- claimed to be the Savior. And that is what, why all the hatred is now forced toward Jesus. And he even supported that claim by the driving out of, of demons and disease and death. He had authority over sin. It would have been good news to anybody else. But to them, it was bad news. Because what Jesus was espousing was the gospel not based on our worthiness, but his worthiness. A gospel not based on what we could do to somehow again earn the merit or earn the favor of God, but it was a gospel instead that was not available by human works. You couldn't earn it, you couldn't deserve it, you couldn't achieve it. It was apart from from works and apart from worthiness. And to the Pharisees' religion, spiritual pride reigned and so you see this cataclysmic banging of these gospels one the gospel of the law which was no good news at all and the gospel of grace in a head-on collision in a synagogue and Jesus was grieving the hardness of their hearts jesus had come on the scene and said no 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 it's not about your pride It's not about your worthiness. It's not about what you can do. Who comes on the scene and says, actually, it's about repenting of sin? It's about confessing your unworthiness. It's about humbling yourself before God. The Pharisees hated the theology of Jesus because he attacked them at the point of their spiritual arrogance. It's an age old story, Highland. The more religious people are, the more proud they are of their achievements. And the more proud we are of our achievements, the more we push back against the gospel of grace. The more we don't like to hear about grace because it begins to tear away at all the things we have accomplished, all of our achievements, all the things that we had done. Have you noticed a pattern here in the Gospel of Mark? The people who responded to Jesus were the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the criminals, and the outcast, can I tell you why? They had zero spiritual pride. They had nowhere else to go but to Jesus. I mean, they were the unsynagogued. (laughs) They were the ones on the outside. They were the ones that no one thought about, no one cared about. Certainly the Pharisees looked down on them. They had no pride to hold on to, so they come to Jesus. Let me help Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John make a lot of sense to all this in the house this morning. Maybe with this one statement, maybe you want to think with me or maybe you want to write this down. Jesus was hated because he shined the light of grace on the darkness of religious people. This was the purpose of Christ. He came to shine this light of grace, and why was it that it was the religious people who pushed back on it? Because the religious people were satisfied with their arrogance. They were satisfied with their achievements. They were satisfied with all the things that they could do. Self righteous, prideful religious people, they run from the true gospel. They run, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, from the light of the gospel of grace shining in the face of Jesus. They ran away from that. Because when Christ came, he came to shine this light of grace. Mark chapter 3 verse 7 is such an interesting hard right turn. In verses 1 through 6, especially 6, there's this planning of his death. These religious leaders who are turning against him. What's happening in verse 7 is that we see the popularity of Jesus now. This grace is beginning to attract people. So it says in verse 7 that Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan, from beyond Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard that all he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Wow, what a scene. Jesus is walking through and people are pressing up around him. And as he just kind of walks by unclean spirits, they fall down on the ground. Prostipto is the word in Greek. And it means for an inferior to bow down to a superior. And they were just bowing down. And I, I think this is kind of fascinating, if you don't mind, here in verse 11. It's fascinating to me that the demons were more accurate in their theology than the Pharisees were. Because they even cried out, you're the son of God. We know who you are. We will bow down. We must bow down. You are the son of God. And the religious people were so blinded in that day, they could not even see Christ as the son of God. Look at these people surrounding them. Let me just kind of give you a a little geography here without a a map. I should have got a map for all of us this week, but no map. Look at verse eight. We see that that place, um, Edumia, And Edomia was was the descendants of of Esau. It was the Edomites. So the Edomites lived in Edomia, which was south of Jerusalem, so the southern part of Judea. And again, these were the descendants of Esau. Remember, Esau was the unchosen. This was a multi-ethnic, multinational group, and they were making the journey up from from the southern part of Judea. This would have been a several-day journey, but they had heard about this Christ. So the descendants of the unchosen... We're pressing into Jesus. The next people we see here, they're from Tyre and Sidon. We see that in verse 8 as well. Tyre and Sidon was about 100 to 120 miles northwest of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, who lived there? Gentiles. So you have the descendants of the unchosen Esau. Making their way north for the Sea of Galilee to press around Jesus. You have Gentiles from 100 to 120 miles away entire in and Sidon. And who else do we see? We see people coming from Jerusalem. That would have been the Jews. This is a remarkable picture here in Mark chapter 4 of the nations coming to Jesus. It actually is a a snapshot of a a reality that will happen in heaven one day when every tribe and every tongue will gather around the throne of Christ. And we see it happening right here. The nations were gathering around him. Highland, listen, when you love Jesus, you can't get enough of Jesus. And they were gathering around him. They were pressing into him. They wanted to, to, to follow him. They wanted to know him. They wanted to be near him. Mark chapter 3, verse 13. And so Jesus went up on a mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and send them out to have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the 12, Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James. To whom he gave this interesting name, Boanerges, which was an Aramaic term that meant to rumble, so that is the sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot, and of course a familiar name and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Now, this is very interesting. Go back to verse 13. Jesus is beginning to do the calling. Did you see that? He went up to the mountain and he called to him, to himself, those those whom he desired and they came to him. Don't miss the simplicity of verse 13. Jesus does the calling and we do the following. Jesus initiates this. We even see kind of the sovereignty of his grace here. He pulled together those whom he desired. And Jesus starts naming and even renaming a few of his followers, his disciples and And we see the 12 right here. But look what also he called them in verse 14. He called them, it says, his apostles. He named them apostles. The word apostles, I know it's kind of a churchy word, but it means to be sent out. It means to be sent out on mission. So he's gonna send these 12 out as his gospel voice. He's gonna send these 12 out as his representatives. These 12 out as his workers, his his doers, his proclaimers. He sends out his servants. Jesus named them and then called them out to be his, then called them out to live on mission. Let's, let's bring that to our hearts today. Here's what I wrote down for you to consider. Christian, Jesus has named you and called you a sent servant. You're apostles in your workplace, at school, in your community, in your home, because all the word apostle means is to be sent By God. To to live on mission in in, in your in the marketplace, to live on mission in the hallways of your school, to, to live on mission in your apartment complex, to live on mission in your community, in your neighborhood. We are all, as daughters and sons of God, called to be sent, called to live on mission. And I hope I don't hurt your feelings by saying this. You weren't called to be queens and kings, you were called to be servants. This is our mission. This is our sending. In the same way that Christ pulled together those whom he desired and he sent them out in the same way, daughters and sons of God, we have been called to be sent, to be sent out. We weren't saved to sit. We were saved to be sent, to live on mission, to go and to represent, to be the gospel voice of Christ, to be his representatives, to be his ambassadors, to be his workers, his proclaimers, his doers, his servants. This is what Paul said when he was writing to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. You also see on the screen behind me, for we are his workmanship. And I think I've defined that for you before. The Greek word is poema, which is where we get our English word poem or work of art or masterpiece. You are God's work of art created in Christ Jesus. For what? Why am I created, God? Why am I here? For good works, which God prepared beforehand beforehand, that we might walk in Them. What is the them? The good works. So if you came into this house today going, what's my purpose? Why am I here, God? What do you have for me? Who am I to be now that I'm a follower of Christ? Here it is. You are to walk in good works. You're to walk in these good works that God has prepared beforehand for you. This is your purpose. You were created in Christ Jesus to do good works, to serve others, to serve the Lord. So this morning, as I've been doing the last two weeks, let me give you some really practical ways, some opportunities for you and I to holy sweat this week. Here's the first thing. Invite a Highland single, that can be a single adult, college student, widow, widower, to a meal. You always sit in the same place. I, I, I know where you sit every Sunday, and I promise you somewhere in your section there is a single adult or a college student or a widow or a widower Invite them to a meal. If your house is messy, invite them out to eat somewhere. Say, hey, I'll pick up the tab. I'll be glad. We want to know you. I'd like to get to know you. We're in the same community here at Highland. We're in the same family of God. I would challenge you and encourage you this next week, this next two weeks, before this month is over, before this summer is over, to meet a single adult in our church, a college student in our church, a widow in our church, a widower in our church. And invite them out for a meal. And realize how much you have in common together in Christ. Here's a second way that you and I can can do good works, a second way that you and I can can participate in holy sweat, and that's to be on Highland's welcome team. There's probably a lot of you in this house this morning. You're a member here at Highland, or you're you're here all the time and yet you often ask yourself or often wonder to yourself, I wonder where I can serve or I haven't found a place to serve yet and I really want to be serving. I know even as a covenant member I committed to serve. I think as long as you can smile, that's the only prerequisite to being a welcome team. As long as you can smile, this is a great way to serve because you're at church already showing up a few moments early, being at a door, welcoming people, opening a door, welcoming people, helping to serve coffee, this really is, is the best way for you and I to demonstrate the, the New Testament um, edict that we've been given, direct we've been given, to show hospitality to all. So if you're looking for a way to serve when this gathering is over, in fact in the lobby, go out the center doors, make a right, and there's a a couple of tables and our welcome team coordinators will be there and they'll let you know what it looks like to serve in this way. So you've been looking for a way to serve at Highland, looking for a way to walk in good works, this is an easy way to do it. Be on Highland's welcome team. Here's a third option I have for you. Shop at Jubilee Market this week. Jubilee Market is a grocery store in the middle of a food desert here in Waco and it is a ministry the operation of Mission Waco Mission World. If you got to shop, I mean, you're going to have to buy Dr. Pepper and spaghetti this week anyway, so you might as well go down to Jubilee Market at least one day this week, maybe it's one day a month. It's at 16th and Call Court, not too very far from here, and often, and I know uh, probably the president of HEB is here now that I say this, it's usually a little cheaper than HEB, and so I'd encourage you to, to do some shopping at Jubilee Market. to and doing so, you're supporting a, a ministry here in our city and helping families that live in that part of Waco who need a place to shop for nutritional food. And you're thinking, Pastor John, I live right by H-E-B. I live right by Walmart. I live right by the grocery store. What I'm saying is there's going to have to be some sweat involved in the good works. And it might be a five minute extra drive for you. Maybe ten minutes both ways. To shop at Jubilee Market, that's a great way for you and I to do good works, to walk in good works. Here's a fourth thing I have for you. Thank an investor. Who is someone who has poured into your life, who has taught you God's word, who has pointed you to Jesus or carried you to Jesus or showed you what it looks like to walk as a disciple? Who was that fifth grade Sunday school teacher? Maybe someone in your high school, someone that you went to school with, someone in your neighborhood that they kept just pointing you to Christ, I would encourage you this week to sweat just a little bit. I know this is going to be difficult because it might take 120 seconds to do so. But to write a letter and to send it to someone who had invested into you spiritually. A great way to walk in good works. And here's a fifth way that I have for us. Is to be a special needs buddy here, here at Highland. We have a special needs ministry as part of our children's ministry. And every semester, we need one or two more special need buddies. And the reason we call them buddies is because that buddy gets to connect up with a child that has special needs and, and be with that child, encourage that child, pray with that child, sit with that child during kids' connection. We're always looking for a couple people who'd be willing to do this. And let me say this. This is a huge ministry to our church, but more importantly and more specifically than that is a huge ministry to that family that has a child of special needs. So if you're interested in doing that, there is training, there is background checks, and there's supervision. If you're interested in that, you can email Joni Swinger, our children's minister, or email me and I'll pass it along to the right person. But that might be a way that this summer, this coming semester, this next year, this next couple of years that you can serve. Look at those five things. Let me say this. I'm not asking anybody in this congregation to do all five of those things. But I'm not gonna back off by asking if everyone in this congregation would do at least one of those things this week. You are created for this. You are created to do good works. That God has prepared beforehand for you that you and I might walk in these good works. Let's wrap this up in Mark chapter three. Look at verse 20 with me. I always forget this part, this story is in here. Look look at verse 20, Mark chapter three. Then he, Jesus, went home, which was Capernaum, and no surprise to anybody here at Highland today. And the crowd gathered again. They were just around him. Again, if you, if you love Jesus, you can't get enough of Jesus. And the crowd gathered around him so that he could not even eat or they could not even eat. Meaning Jesus and the disciples, they didn't even have room to eat. They didn't have time to eat. And when his family heard about this, when the family of Jesus heard about it, they went out to seize Jesus for they were saying he is out of his mind. Jesus, you've lost it. You're just serving and people are gathered around you and you can't even eat. What is wrong with you? You're just seeing yourself as a servant to all. And here's the last word I have for us this morning that the Lord pressed on my heart to press onto your heart. Let's love Jesus and serve others so well that Waco thinks that we have lost our minds. Because this is what Jesus' own family was saying. Jesus, you're serving, you're you're loving, you're, you're, you're doing all these good works, you're caring for people, you're not even asking for their credentials, and you're loving them. It doesn't even matter if they're worthy of love. You just love these people, you serve these people. What would it be like? The people of Waco said of you, you love so well, you serve so well, you look so much like Jesus, I think you've lost your mind. And really in our world, to serve others and to esteem others above ourselves to be a servant to all without asking their credentials and if they're worth being served is so counterintuitive and so countercultural that of course people will realize we are following the upside down call of Jesus to follow him in serving others in a very self-centered way world they've lost their minds they love that well and serve so well would you stand with me please and let's pray together father your word has a way of recalibrating our thoughts your word has a way of recalibrating our schedule and our passions Your word has a way of exposing a very bright light on our self-centeredness. And as to many people who walked in this place today wondering what their purpose is, we now know we were created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And Father, we want to rightly say to you that we will do good works this week. We will sweat in a holy way this week. Because of your grace. Not to win your grace, but because of your grace. Your grace came because we were unworthy. We were lost. We were in darkness. We were depraved. We were spiritually dead. And now because of your grace... To those who have called upon the name of the Lord Jesus for salvation, they are now sons and daughters of God. Therefore, because of grace, we serve. Because of grace, we sweat. Because of grace, we will follow the path of Jesus deeply into a self-centered world, even if they think we've lost our minds. We want to serve that well. We want to love that well. Jesus, thank you for being our perfect example perfect standard you lowered yourself from heaven you were the first apostle being sent by God to live on mission and Jesus because you are a sent servant we too want to be sent servants so we fix our eyes upon Jesus and we follow him Christ the servant to all In that name, that we pray, that we believe, and that our hearts are recalibrated together this morning in Christ alone.